Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The BBC recently reported that the share of the world's wealth owned by the richest 1% increased from 44% in 2009 to 48% in 2015, and that on current trends, Oxfam expects the wealthiest 1% to own more than 50% of the world's wealth by 2016. What must we hear from the biblical prophets in the face of this staggering trend? How should the rich and the poor relate to each other? How does scripture understand wealth and the consequences of greed? Richard and I reflect on these questions and the shame that God's generosity brings to those who believe that they've earned what they have. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 53 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Richard and I saw a news article that was very disconcerting. It talked about the distribution of wealth, not in the United States, not in Europe, but in the world. And all the metrics seem to indicate that we are trending toward a situation where more than 50% of the world's wealth will be controlled by 1% of the population. I mean, there are consequences in the profits for our possessiveness of land, our possessiveness of security, and our use of wealth to try to buy security. And I know that's one of the many themes you're dealing with in not just the book of Hosea, but the book of the Twelve in general. I was hoping you could talk about that today, Dr. Benton. The main problem in Hosea is fear. The reason why people use the wealth that they have in the way that they do is because of fear. In Hosea, there's two ways that they're using their wealth. They're using it to buy off the gods, Baal namely, by creating idols, by sacrificing to them. So they need lots of wealth in order to do that. But then they're also concerned about foreign invasions. And so they pay tribute to growing nations like Assyria, and they pay them off for diplomatic means. They give nice gifts to them in order to keep them on their side so that way they don't get invaded. And so it reveals that their main concerns are some kind of problem with their wealth being created. And in the ancient world, your wealth is created by agriculture. And in the invasion, by foreign nations and taking the wealth that they have. It really is based in this deep, deep fear that they're going to lose what they have. Where does this fear lead them? It leads them to slavery, according to Hosea. You can either be a slave to Baal, a slave to Assyria slash Egypt. He constantly calls Assyria Egypt because it's a reminder of what it was like under Pharaoh, where Pharaoh forced you to do what he wanted so that he wouldn't kill you, or become a son of Yahweh. However, the only way to be a son of Yahweh is to show it. And what do you show? You show that you're following his teaching, his Torah. So you have a choice. You can either follow the Torah of Baal, 
or the Torah of Yahweh. The Torah of Baal means you have to keep accumulating wealth and keep creating idols and sacrificing, and every time you get a chance, sacrificing what you have, accumulating more so you have more to sacrifice, you have bigger sacrifices to make in order to get more gains, or stop building altars, stop building idols, and live according to justice and mercy. And Yahweh specifically says, I don't want sacrifice. I want justice and mercy. And so you become a slave to your fear, which means then you have to keep accumulating in order to keep the forces of nature and the enemy at bay. Or you can allow Yahweh to control it all and because you're not concerned about keeping it at bay, because there's no buying off Yahweh, there's no sacrifice that's going to influence him. So you just continue to act according to mercy and justice and kindness towards the weaker. And by acting kinder towards the weaker, then you live in a society that's kinder, that's more just, that's more merciful. So do you want to live in a society that people are scrambling to get enough so they can sacrifice so that they can keep the forces they fear most at bay? Or do you want to live in a society where people can live in harmony and justice because what they have is simply a gift to them and therefore a gift to the next person? Well, and the consequences of not heeding this directive are severe. There's this beautiful passage in chapter 2 of Micah where the Lord talks about those who take fields who evict widows from their homes, those who covet wealth and covet the land and so forth. And he talks about all the ways in which he will undermine their greed, right? So what's going on there? Is it punishment? Is it consequence? Is it instruction? And what does that imply again for the trajectory of our own greed in our current historical circumstance? Well, I mean, the Bible throughout is talking about the reversal of fortunes. In Job, we have it. In 1 Samuel, we have it. In Luke, we have it. That those who are rich are going to be poor, and those who are poor are going to be rich. And we see this happen. I mean, you can tell, even in the United States, the great champions of industry and the great corporations of 100 years ago in the United States, the vast majority don't exist anymore. Is this the punishment of God, or is this the natural cycle of things? You can argue about this. I can't prove it either way. But what I can tell you is that it happens. How do we understand why it happens? Why is it that Enron fell? Was it because of the wrath of God or is it because of the wrath of Wall Street? What was it? Was it because prices fell? The consequences are that they strengthened a system in which there was no mercy and justice, but in which Baal was the master. They chose to enslave themselves paying off politicians and paying off R&D in order to get to the next big thing rather than acting according to justice and mercy. They did their best in order to buy up fields, in order to do exploration, buy it up at a cheap price from people, starving farmers in the Midwest, in order to make a big fat buck off of them and then hire them back at $10 an hour in order to work in their dirty oil fields. This is how you can get it to work if you're concerned about making sure that you have enough to keep yourself safe. How is Enron going to keep Enron strong? Well, Enron could not keep Enron strong because eventually the game was up. Wrath of the Lord or natural consequences? I don't know. But what I do know is that if they had been living according to the Torah of Yahweh, 
then there would not have been these consequences because they would not have been thinking about strengthening themselves. They may have even disappeared earlier, but they would not have disappeared with people taunting them and Michael Moore making an entire movie simply to taunt them, like Micah talks about how those rich people are eventually taunted. Right, right, exactly. But instead, people will have compassion for them and sadness that they disappeared because of what they did for people. Mother Teresa was able to make money in her sleep, literally. There are stories about her, I may have even said this before. When she was on an airplane, she would fall asleep. The flight attendants would find out that she was on the plane and Mother Teresa would wake up and there would be a pile of money in her lap. Literally a pile of money in her lap because people would make a collection for her. But why do they do this? Do they do this so that she could establish a bigger corporation? No, what she did with the money is she would build a building so that she could house her nuns. And what would they do? They would literally clean toilets for the poorest, dirtiest people of India or wherever out of mercy for them. And so she died and people lamented her death. Enron died and people rejoiced in their death. And we're all going to die, so then it's the legacy that you want to leave. Do you want to leave a legacy where the people are rejoicing in your demise or lamenting your demise? Are they going to remember you as a monument, as a witness to the Torah of Yahweh or to the Torah of Baal? Even today, if you're able to possess the land and control wealth in order to control your security, and even if you are insulated from the taunting, as so many are, you always see protests and different things, and they do a good job of shielding themselves and acting impervious to the ridicule. But everything in life catches up with you. You can only kick the can down the road so far. So your children will suffer the consequences of your greed and your possessiveness. And it's not just a question of the taunting. I think that in 1 Corinthians, as we discussed last week, Paul is clear that everything originates from God. Paul would say, just as woman was taken from man, man is taken from the womb of woman, which means that everybody is in this together in a way. Before God, whatever the social hierarchy is, before God, we are all on the same plane. And so Chrysostom plays on this in his Paschal Sermon and talks about the rich and the poor feasting together. This is more than just a pretty poetic metaphor about how nice it would be if we all just got along. The rich can't feast without the poor because who on earth is going to work the fields to bring the grain and the produce and the milk and the fat of the land to your table? Which means that when the wealthy man sits down to eat, he must give thanks to God who provided the field and the workers therein to produce the meal. And once you understand this, you realize that it was provided for you from God, from whom all things originate, so that you could share it. In Zechariah, when we look towards the end of the Book of the Twelve, we're seeing how Yahweh wants to create his ideal land, his ideal city. And in it, I find it very interesting how the nations become jealous of Israel, of Jerusalem, because everyone there is living according to Torah. There is no war there. There is no shortage there. They have everything they need. And we know today, at the population we're at now, we still have enough to feed everybody. It's just not 
distributed to everybody as they need it. In the U.S., we have more calories than we need, but in Mali, they have fewer calories than they need. We just shift those calories over somehow. I don't know enough about economics how to do that. That's much more difficult. But this is the issue, is how do we do it? Look at how much effort we put into figuring out how to become richer and how little we put into figuring out how to get those calories to Molly. My daughter was talking about, isn't it so interesting with cloning technology? You know, what do you think, Dad, about bringing back the mammoth? We have the technology. Maybe we can clone a mammoth. And I said, I find it a terrible idea because I think it's cruel for human beings to bring back a mammoth to amuse themselves. What is a mammoth going to do? What habitat are they going to inhabit? They're going to have to live in a zoo. How wonderful we are. Look how great we are as human beings. We can bring back a mammoth and have it sit in a zoo until it dies an early death because genetic technology is not strong enough to keep it healthy. So it's going to be sick. So look how wonderful we are as human beings. We're able to do this. Now, what about human beings that are sick in Mali? How much money is being put into bringing back a woolly mammoth? And how little is put into helping those people in Mali to eat one meal a day, let alone three meals a day. In the U.S., we talk about, oh, it's better to eat five meals a day instead of three meals a day. Look at the luxury we have to say that. When in Mali, they say, do we eat one or zero? We have larger homes. We have more property. We have more convenience. But we have smaller families. We have disconnected and broken families. And this is leading to all kinds of suffering in our culture. We comfort ourselves that we have the moral high ground because of our egalitarian ideology and because we're not like ISIS and so forth and so on and because we're able to draw beautiful cartoons making fun of poor people. That's what makes us so wonderful. When in reality, our society is rotting from the inside. What I'm driving at, Richard, is that I think there are real consequences that are realized now, will be realized for future generations and it goes well beyond the simple discomfort of being taunted. I think the taunting is a sign of God's wrath in Scripture. But the wrath runs much deeper and is more pervasive in its consequences. All of this has caused me to think about this beautiful prayer in the wedding service where the celebrant asks God, he pleads with God, to fill the home of the wedding couple with wheat, wine, and oil not so that they can use it for their own enjoyment, but as the prayer says specifically, so that they can share it with those who are in need. This is, I think, the biblical understanding of community. It's the biblical understanding of marriage, which is the understanding of community, that everything is provided by God from whom all things originate so that it may be shared. As you keep saying in Hosea, God desires mercy. He doesn't desire religion. He doesn't desire your security. He desires mercy. And in Hosea, it specifically uses that phrase, wheat, wine, and oil, to talk about how the land misunderstands the universe. The land believes that the wheat, wine, and oil came from Baal. And that's the problem. So what, when it, The wealthy, the 1%, believe that the wheat, wine, and oil came from their hard work. Or the stock market, or Keynesian economics, or whatever. To which Paul says, no, it came from grace. As I said in my first year as a priest preaching to someone who made bread for the first time in the liturgy, please never fall in the trap of imagining that you are presenting the bread for the liturgy. Did you make the wheat in the field grow? Did you process 
the wheat into flour and package it. No, someone who probably has a much worse station in life did that for you. Did you earn the money that you used to buy the flour? Or is your capacity to earn money the gift of God who gave you the ability? I mean, you could go on and on like this. So by the time you actually make a piece of bread to bring it to the altar, you're just bringing back what God provided. So don't give me this nonsense about how you earned it. Well, and the thing is, is that as you talk about the rot within our society, this comes from this fear of death, either coming from natural consequences or the enemy from outside. This fear is the core of the rot. And the thing that can drive out this fear is the gratitude that you speak of. It's the gratitude of these things that today I have. I may feel dissatisfied with my work, that I'm not being challenged in the way that I like, that I'm not moving up the corporate ladder as much as I like. When I lived in Seattle, I heard of a couple from Burma who cleaned houses for a living. To get to the houses they were cleaning, they would have to take three buses. One time the father had to clean on a weekend. He came back. By the time it was time to get his third bus, the buses had stopped running. It was too late at night. He spent the night in a bus shelter so that when the buses started running in the morning, he could get back home. Now, was he complaining that his job was not fulfilling enough, that his job was not allowing him to advance up the corporate ladder enough? Maybe. But I have to say, there but by the grace of God go I. I have a job where when I'm not at the job, I'm not taking buses all morning and all night in order to get home exhausted, to nod at my children before I collapse without dinner, but I can spend time with my children. Those moments with my children are a gift to me because my job is a gift to me. If I understand that this job is a gift for me, then God gives, God takes away, and I can be content with that as long as I stay with that gratitude. If I'm afraid of losing my job, then I'll step on whoever I need and I'll push aside whoever gets in my way and this becomes who I am. I become a child of Baal because I follow the Torah of Baal. I follow the Torah in which I have to grab whatever I can in order to appease the one who lets it trickle to me as much as his whim allows him to, rather than the one who gives generously more than I deserve. And I respond by following his Torah out of gratitude. This whole question of entitlement and the fact that people claim that they've earned it is according to human logic, their own logic, incorrect. Because if you look at a slave worker in the third world, whether they are actually a slave or their life is tantamount to slavery, they work 10 times harder, 20 times harder, under horrible conditions than the average office worker in the United States who complains about how they work so hard and people on welfare don't work hard enough so they shouldn't do anything to help them. All of this talk, I mean, it's not about liberal or conservative. I'm neither liberal nor conservative. I think they're all the slaves of their own ideology. But this talk about how we earned it and they don't deserve it, not only is it a lie, it's from the devil. The clothes on our back. Someone had to dye the material. Someone had to pick the cotton. Someone had to sew it. Whether it's by hand or whether it was by machine, there's someone working in a factory somewhere. Now, Americans complain that they can't get a t-shirt for less than 20 bucks. 
and they demand a t-shirt for less than 20 bucks, which means someone has to suffer in order to make that t-shirt less than 20 bucks. And then they come with the shirt on their back that hundreds of people have suffered to produce, often in terrible conditions, and in a life that none of us would even dare imagine for ourselves. And then they tell me they earned the money to buy that shirt. Look at the language behind this. Why do they need a shirt for less than 20 bucks? Because they need to buy one for 15 because that $5, what do they need that $5 for? This is the thing. The idea that they need it for 15 and not 20, rather than saying, out of gratitude, I'm happy I can buy one for $20, that $5 is the price of fear. This is the fear that I might need this $5 in order to survive. I might need this $5 to stave off whatever problem might come up. I need to put this in my 401k because I don't know what's gonna to happen to social security. I might be destitute. So the answer for our listeners is very simple. If you aspire to be part of the 1%, if you are part of the 1%, you have only to look to scripture for the solution to your problem, which is your love of money. And that is to realize that whatever you have was given to you in order to share with others, period. And just so people understand the margin we're talking about, a people we're talking about here in the United States, the 1% that we're talking about is someone who owns one house in San Francisco, one house in Los Angeles, a decent sized house. This is the 1%. 1% in these terms was 500,000 pounds, which is around three quarters of a million dollars. If your entire net worth as a human being, everything you own, minus all your debts, is three quarters of a million dollars. This is not huge. People say, how much do you need to retire? You know, nowadays you need close to a million dollars to retire with a decent salary. So the suggestion we have is that, you know, the only way you can be comfortable in retirement is if you're in this 1%. The advice we give people is that if you want to be comfortable, you have to be in this 1%. We're not talking about Bill Gates billionaires 1%. We're talking about people who follow standard retirement advice, who own one good piece of real estate. This is the 1% we're talking about. So in case your listeners think that they're far from the 1%, think again, do the math again, and think of what you own, because this is something that affects many more Americans than most Americans would be willing to admit. So the Lord has filled our homes in the United States with wheat, wine, and oil. The question is, what are we gonna do about it? Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Take care. just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.